Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, Receive the Implanted Word. Curtis. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here on a very busy, or start of a very busy weekend. Uh, obviously, uh, tonight we have a concert, and tomorrow we'll be here again, and the next day we'll be here, and then the next day we'll be here. So here today starts a marathon of coming to church, and we have a lot of things going on, as we always do in the springtime with the Passover coming up. And today's message is entitled, Receiving the Implanted Word. And it comes from James, the first chapter, verses 19 through 21. Now the principal theme is a little bit different from the actual title. The theme of this message, I decided that instead of having just you know, so many main points, I wanted to really kind of encapsulate like one really broad theme that encapsulates maybe some all different types of ideas, but just to really hammer one point, and that is hearing the Word of God. Now the word implanted, we're going to look at here in a little while. It's very unique to the New Testament, specifically in the book of James. But in order to receive the implanted word, which James talks about, and we'll see that here in just a few minutes, we have to first hear the word of God. The message today is about hearing the implanted word and the requirements or the prerequisites that we need in order for this to happen. You know, just some Passover thoughts that I was thinking about on the way here was, I was thinking about, you know, it's not just this time of year, it's every time of year, but, but it seems especially the case during the springtime with so many things going on, but I was thinking of all the distractions that we have to live through in this world. You know, a lot of these distractions are self-imposed. You know, the world is obviously distracting enough, but sometimes we get in the way of ourselves. Sometimes, you know, we might be doing certain things in our lives, thinking certain ways, having certain attitudes that distracts us from God's Word, that distracts us from hearing God's Word. And it's very interesting because the book that we are reading out of, the Epistle of James, has been discussed for centuries. It's been disparaged by many throughout church history such as by Martin Luther and his disdain for this book. But in recent times, it has taken up more of an interest in biblical scholarship. And just to kind of go through some of the background, I think that it's very important for us to understand the perspective that this epistle was written from. Obviously, it's called the book of James or the letter of James because it has traditionally been ascribed to what we or the person we know as James the Just the brother of James, the leader of that Jerusalem church we hear about in the book of Acts. Supposedly, the most likely time period that this was written in was from 44 A.D. to 49 A.D. The way scholars come up with that is simply because there's no mention of what is known as the Jerusalem Conference in the epistle. And so because of that, there is an inference made that it was probably written prior that conference taking place, that meeting that's found in Acts, the 15th chapter. 
And so what that means is, is that this book is a book that was actually written pretty early, comparatively speaking, to the other documents that we have in the New Testament. The first very verse in this uh, book, the very first few verses, identifies who this book is written to. It says, to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. And so, typically, this book has been interpreted as being a book that has a lot of ideas that would be familiar to a Jewish audience. You know, we know that Christianity was born out of what today, or what people call, you know, Judaism. The religion of the Old Testament, or the religion of, uh, of, of the Hebrew people. We understand that there's a difference between Judaism and the actual truthness and genuineness of what the Old Testament's all about and what the Old Testament discusses. But we do know that this movement we call Christianity was something that came out of first century Hebrew or Hebraic thought. And so when we read this book, there's a lot of things that we can learn by just having kind of an idea of what was going on, on during this time period. Like many eras in history, this was a volatile period. Volatilely politically, there were different movements. Uh, there was a very wealthy aristocratic uh, class of people within actually the Jewish people among like the high priests who actually had deals and pacts made with the political rulers of the Roman Empire. And the people at the bottom, and we see this come out in the Gospels, with Jesus speaking, the people who are more of humble origins, maybe they're not very wealthy, maybe they're peasants or they're more poor, those people were a lot of times abused. A lot of times they were robbed of their land. A lot of times they were kept, there were strict laws that, you know, were meant to keep the wealthy rich and the poor poor. And so because of this, when we look at the history of the first century between the Romans and between that Judean area we call Jerusalem, what we see is a very volatile world where eventually would culminate in revolts that would actually topple Jerusalem. A lot of these people, or a lot of people in this period of time, were very influenced by a group called the Zealots. And these Zealots were militant. You see, their idea was, you know what? We need to take back our land by force. We need to do it by violence. And so when we read the epistle of James, we see a lot of this coming out that James is trying to address. That a lot of these 12 tribes that are you know, scattered all over the Roman Empire might be influenced by this ideology. Maybe these zealots are right. Maybe it's up to us. Maybe what God wants us to do is to be vengeful and violently take back our land. But James is speaking not just to, obviously, Jewish people living in Jerusalem or living in this first century setting within the Roman Empire, but he's speaking of people, Jews, who are historic Jews, who are, uh, have a Jewish heritage that has accepted Jesus Christ, that has come into the way, as it is described in the Bible. So let's just go ahead and read verses 19 through 27. 
And I have to admit that when I began this sermon, I planned on doing a sermon on verses 19 through 27. And then I realized that this would be too much to cover in one message, especially a split sermon. So my hope is, is that this is going to be a two-part message with today being receiving the implanted word and the next part covering the rest of the verses of chapter 1 entitled Living Out the Implanted Word. But James, the first chapter, verse 19, says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, and for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And so, obviously, just to keep in mind the principal theme is be hearers of the word. Let us look to see what James has to say about hearing God's word. Now there's two things I want to bring out in this theme. The first way, there's, you know, we have to ask the question, James says, you know, in this passage, you know, be recipients, hear, receive the implanted word. We have to ask the question, why? And James answers that for us. He gives us two things. First, he says, block out hindrances. Block out the hindrances that are keeping you from responding positively and properly to God's word. And he goes on to tell us three imperatives. Three essentials or urgent things. He says, be quick to hear, be slow to speak, and slow to anger. Of course, the idea of listening more than speaking is pretty common in the scriptures. And this is especially the case among what is known as the wisdom tradition of Jewish thought of the day. Readers of James' words would have understood the background and what he was talking about. Very heavily in the Proverbs is there a discussion about speaking, maybe not wisely, and how much we should speak versus how much we should stay silent. The idea of, of wisdom and speech being linked to, to uh, uh, hasty uh, anger is even discussed. If we were to read Proverbs, the 17th chapter, verse 27 through 28, this is just one among many passages that discusses this. It says, he who has knowledge spares his words, and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he is considered or perceptive. And the three elements are related, obviously, that Paul's talking about. Speech, listening, anger. If I said Paul, I meant James. Uh, what James is talking about. Hasty speech, I think we could all admit, is often rooted in anger. Slow listening is also often rooted in anger. I thought this was very interesting because I was reading about this passage and I was just kind of looking to see uh, what some others have said about it. And a very interesting quote that really kind of struck a chord with me was by William Barclay, who's a, a very famous Bible commentary. He came out with a uh, daily Bible study series uh, many, many years ago. Uh, he's a Scottish 
a biblical scholar, but he says a most interesting list could be compiled of the things in which it is best to be quick and the things in which it is best to be slow. I thought that was so profound and true. I mean, we can think of all the things that really we should try to focus on and probably it's more wise to be quick at these things and be slow at these things. Be quick to maybe encourage, to praise, to forgive, to repent, and obviously to hear. Maybe it's wise maybe sometimes to be slow to criticize or judge, to assume, to conclude. I think we can all relate to this idea of anger and speech and lack of listening or being slow to listen. You know, oftentimes when people are angry, they, they're not in a state of being where they're really interested in listening. Typically when we're angry, we refuse to listen. And a lot of times when we are angry, we are very tempted to do a lot of talking, to be pretty quick with our mouths. You know, the emotion of anger is often accompanied with many things, including outbursts of words, sometimes colorful, adverbial, and adjectal words, adjective words. And it can also be said that anger is oftentimes the root of physical violence. Which is very interesting because James discusses how such a small part of our body is so powerful. Obviously, tongue is the mechanism or the means by which we speak. And James has a lot to say about this small but very powerful part of the body. Some of his analogies include, you know, we can look at these huge ships that are blown away and that, that, that are powered by these strong winds but are actually guided and directed by small rudders. Or how about forest fires? It talks about how forest fires, how it starts out really small with maybe just a quick little fire, a quick flicker, but sometimes it can result in hundreds of square miles being destroyed. Considering the Yellow National Park wildfire of 1988 was over almost up to 800,000 acres burnt. And we can think about this in different areas of our lives. But sometimes we are maybe tempted to be a little quick, quicker to speak than we should be. And a little, uh, you know, quicker to get a little bit agitated. This could be at work with our coworkers, or supervisors, or subordinates. This could be in our family relationships, wives, husbands, children, parents, brothers, sisters, friends, and even neighbors, strangers that we really don't even know that well. So James tells us these three things, and then he goes on to say that passage that we saw there, in verse 1, or verse uh, not 19, but uh, verse 20, that talks about how these things, the anger of man, does not produce the righteousness of God. The result of holding these things back, anger and quick speech, is being able to produce God's righteousness. The same word here in verse 19, or verse 20, is the same word from verse 19, which is anger, which is a word that in the Greek is orge. And a good passage that really meshes well with this idea is in just a couple chapters over in this same book. In James chapter 3, verse 18, 
James says, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, it's interesting that we are told in the scriptures that there is a time for righteous anger. There's a time to get angry, and it is justified. But I would think that most of the time that people who focus on this too much probably abuse it. I would think that anger, righteous anger, is something that probably shouldn't happen just all the time. But rather, with all the passages that talk about wisdom and about being slower to speak, might just tell us that we probably should do more listening and less righteous anger. Another thing that can tell us this is just nature. We've all heard this. You know, as the Creator God, He gave us two ears and one mouth. And we've all heard that. And I think when we look at all the passages in the Bible that talk about how much trouble our speech can get us into. I think that God was on to something when he said that, or whenever he created us. I like how the NIV actually translates this verse. It says, righteous life that God desires. God's righteousness. The righteous ethical principles that we live by. We know that those principles are rooted in God's commandments. This is a theological theme throughout the entire Old Testament that book of documents that these people, these recipients of this letter would have been most familiar with. James's idea of righteousness in these passages are linked with the ideas of Jesus' ideas, such as in the Sermon on the Mount, the righteous behaviors that he talked about. Jesus spent a lot of time correcting people's misassumptions about what they thought righteousness was. Jesus, on the entire Sermon on the Mount, said, Look, this is the way you think, basically. These are the the ways you've been taught. Follow these principles. But I'm here to tell you that we're not getting it right, or you're not getting it right. You know, people say this, but really, that's not getting at the spiritual intent that we want you to get to. That's not getting at the perfection that God demands. We can think of all different examples of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount as well as other places where he's having to correct misassumptions by bad teaching. Now the second way, the second hindrance that we have to properly hearing God's word is by receiving the implanted word. Receiving the implanted word. Verse 21 is what tells us that we need to put away certain things and to humbly receive the implanted word. And there's two things that James tells us that we need to put away, which includes filth and wickedness in our lives. The Greek word for filth is the word reperia, and it refers to the external grime, as on filthy clothes that are stained or maybe muddy from being outside or working. An interesting note to this word is that word filthiness is also linked to a root word, rupos in the Greek. And the reason I'm bringing this out because in this period of time, in this day, there was actually an idea medically brought out by this root word, which actually was something that referred to wax in the air, wax in the ear. And it's possible that this is still at play because it meshes well with what James is talking about. 
Obviously, James is trying to be all-encompassing, discussing every possible hindrance in our lives that would prevent us from hearing and in turn responding to the Word of God. You've probably heard that phrase before. You know, when, when someone's like hard of hearing, you ask them, you know, what do you got waxed in your ears? You can't hear me? You're not listening. And we know that th those are things that can get in our ears. And this is spiritual talk, obviously, that can distract us from hearing God's voice. The next phrase after filth is overflow of wickedness. That's what's in the New King James. And it brings out the idea of excess or abundant sin. And I think there's a lot of ideas that can be taken from this, looking at the actual Greek words and how it was used historically in this period of time. The common idea to this phrase is to describe the abundance of sin that exists in this world. And I remember that something I was reminded of the other day was when I was in an economics class, one of the things that the professor always said was that, you know, we live in a world where we have an unlimited amount of wants and needs with a limited amount of resources. And we call that scarcity. But you know what? There's one thing that we can pretty much be very confident of, is that this world is not scarce of sin. And it comes in all different forms. And if it is not killed, and if it's not removed, it will continue to grow like a cancerous tumor and will be deadly. You know, obviously the idea here isn't necessarily that they need to go and wash their clothes physically. But rather, there's a spiritual intent. James has in mind about the spiritual filth that we have accumulated. You know, that the, the spiritual things that sometimes tries to kind of reattach itself to our old carnal ways. You know, both Paul and Peter in, in their epistles both discuss similar ideas, and we've heard this, these ideas at our baptism, at conversion experience, and when other people are baptized, we hear about, you know, how we go down in those baptismal waters, and they become dirty because all of our sins are washed away. We also hear about the terminology of putting off the old man, the, the, you know, the, the old life, that the earthly members that brings about death, like fornication or uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness. We know that there's also things that discusses that as newly begotten children of God, we need to lay aside all of those old carnal characteristics, which brings us to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, what we've heard before that talks about, you know, in this Christian race that we're running, in this race, this race of faith, that oftentimes the analogy was given to athletes who would maybe compete in some sort of race, some sort of you know, triathlon or whatever it was, and they would you know, obviously try to remove everything they could to, that would be hinder them, that would prevent them from performing as efficiently as possible. And the idea that James is bringing out is all the remnants of evil that we have to continually from time to time struggle with in our lives. You know, we are converted Christians, we are, you know, we have received the implanted word, we have received God's Holy Spirit, but sometimes, you know, those sins, those old characteristics, they try to come back. And sometimes they're familiar, things we've struggled with for years and, you know, sometimes have to continue to struggle with. Sometimes they're 
new ones. You know, sin is something that's not just a battle that you win today and it's over, or in a week and it's over, or in a month and it's over, but it's a day-to-day, lifelong battle that we fight. It doesn't matter if you're someone that's young or if someone that's very, very old and doesn't do anything. We still struggle with sin. Going back to the illustration of the tumor, you know, I was thinking about this idea of excess or excessive sin or all the overflow or abundance of sin that exists in the world. And I went and actually looked at a definition from the National Cancer Institute of what a tumor is. And their definition is an abnormal mass of tissue that results when cells divide more than they should or do not die when they should. Tumors may be benign, which is not cancerous, or malignant, which are cancerous. And as mentioned, the idea that is meant by overflow of wickedness is the abundance, the surplus, you know, more and more and more sin, almost, you know, more than you could ever imagine, more than we could ever count. And we know that tumors are very similar in the sense that they're like a surplus of flesh within or on our body that aren't normal, that shouldn't be there, and in many cases are deadly. You know, as the cells multiply, the tumor becomes larger. It starts to spread and starts to affect other parts of the body. And the same thing could be said in our lives with sin. And we must identify those tumors that exist. Those, those tumors that might start out over here, this aspect of our life. But if we do not deal with them, we do not address them, they spread to other aspects of our life and are very deadly. The last little part here. We've heard about like the, the hindrances. You know, the hindrances of removing the filthiness of becoming, you know, uh, someone who is, you know, removing the problems that might, you know, keep us from hearing the word. You know, trying to prevent anger from, man- from making us unwisely lash out and be too much of a talker and not be listening very much. We learn that the way we have to receive this word is in humility, in humbleness. We have to answer the question, just what does James mean by this phrase, the implanted word? This is in verse 21. We've just reviewed the prerequisites, being temperate in our speech and anger, you know, taking off the spiritual filth and the excess of wickedness, identifying cancerous tumors. But we have to ask the question, what exactly does James mean when he says the implanted word? Now, in Greek thought, this word implanted was something that usually in Greek philosophy and Greek ideas brought out some sort of element in life that we are born with, that's innate within us. And a lot of discussion has been poured over this word simply because in Jewish thought, in the New Testament uh, documents that we have, and extra biblical uh, documents that we have, there's not a lot of precedence for this word. There's not a lot of examples. But with the textual structure of this passage, as well as the background, the most likely idea that's being discussed here is not some sort of innate uh, element that we received as, you know, we were born into this world, because this implanted word is able to bring about salvation. And we know that's something that we receive from God 
by decision, not by birth. But more likely, it's referring to that gospel message, which has taken up residence in the believer. Again, another idea that's going to come out that a lot of people have pointed to, and when I say people, a lot of people who have poured over this and studied the background of this, see a parallel in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. Jeremiah 31, verse 33, that says, but this is the covenant, talking about the Israel of the future, talking about God's prophecy, about someday establishing a new covenant, it says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And James is exhorting us. James is exhorting us to see this implanted word that we've received. You know, that's something that we, you know, when we were first baptized, and even today, we, we understand that there, there's a change in nature about us. It's not just about, you know, observing God's laws. It's not just about observing God's commandments, and that's what I have to do. But there's that desire that's placed in us. There's, there's, this, there's this spirit that meshes with our spirit. There's this word of truth that enters our being. And if we allow it to work, if we allow it to flourish within us, it starts and it continues throughout our life to create that new creature. You know, often at the Passover time, we are encouraged both by Scripture and preaching to examine ourselves, to discern the Lord's body, and we see that this is a remembrance of, you know, the things that we have been spared of, you know, the salvation that we have received. We are in the process of receiving and then culminating in the resurrection in the kingdom of God. But the very word Passover, we know that's so clear. We know the analogy. It's, it's as clear as day. Even in the Old Testament, it's not some specialized term. I mean, it's, it's literally the Passover. We know the story. The Israelites in Egypt, and they're in their place, and God spared them. God passed over them because of the blood of that lamb. And the same thing is for us. Jesus' blood, because of what he did, has been painted on our doorposts. So God would pass over us in his righteous wrath, in his justful wrath. And this is all, obviously, only happening because of the death that Jesus experienced. You know, going back to in humility, you know, the, the prerequisite to, you know, after we see all of these things, you know, we, we've, you know, removed the filthiness out of our lives. That means that we recognize, you know, our shortcomings. We have decided to, instead of you know, thinking we know everything and speaking out of turn, we've decided to maybe listen a little bit more and maybe try to be a little bit more temperate. We always do this in humility. We have to do this in humility. We talked about that. You know, Jesus in the parable of the sower, a lot of passages you go to for that, but specifically in Mark, the, the version in Mark chapter 4, verse 3 through 20, he talks about, Preparing the soil in order to receive the seed. Preparing the soil in order to receive the seed and for that seed to be able to grow. We know that receiving God's word 
It takes humility. Why? Because by receiving God's word, we are coming to the realization of who we are before God. Coming to the realization that even though we have these, sometimes, you know, in the past, these cancerous tumors, these imperfections, we struggle with these sometimes horrible sins, God still accepts us. Even though we still have, even after conversion, some of those old man characteristics that maybe we're still struggling with. And we see in awe God's grace that he still receives us despite our filthiness. You know, the whole idea of submitting to God and his word is a humble act. Repentance is a humble act. Literally, it takes humility to say, God, I am wrong. I am not deserving. Please forgive me and help me fix the error of my ways. We can't do that arrogantly. It takes humility. It takes humility. So, in conclusion, just trying to conclude with a good Passover thought, something to kind of take with us throughout the rest of the day and into tomorrow night. I want to just close by asking ourselves, are we in the proper state of mind to receive God's implanted word that we have received? You know, James has given us both commandment, exhortation, and the how to tap into the resource of this implanted word that is in us. Do we have our spiritual ears tuned into what God has to say? To what the implanted word is able to produce in us? You know, something that most all of us have heard before, and I've mentioned this in the actual uh, message, but I want to kind of reiterate it right here is that we've been born with two ears and one mouth. And it seems with all the passages that God has provided us in the scriptures that God is on to something by doing this. The words that James has given us are the ingredients to have a teachable spirit about us. The goal is to hear and to receive God's word, to allow it to produce its perfection in us. We have to ask the question, 